Ah, all right. So I want to show you a couple of images. Uh, being that science teacher, I get a little geeked out about different things. The one that's up there, yep, there it is. Um, this was an image taken in 2020, so 2020, and I was just relaying to Pastor Ralph that um, this was actually taken over a, a, a park, a state park in New Jersey. I want to say, I don't know if it was Wharton State Park. There's a certain, there's definitely a filter on this so that, you know, the exposure was a little bit longer than normal. But um, the, the, the bright spot that you see in the middle there is not a star. It's Jupiter and Saturn next to each other. Um, of course, they're not close in distance, but when, from our perspective, when we look at them, they could appear next to each other. Um, this was taken again in 2020, and they actually dubbed it the Christmas star. So when we look back in uh, astronomical times, we see that the star of Bethlehem was in a, a, during a time period where there were five planets all lined up. So imagine the sight of that to the shepherds and to those people that didn't have all the technology that we have. This was taken um, through a regular, uh, regular telescope, like a regular uh, one that you could purchase. Um, so next image. Okay, this is an image, uh, it's called the Ring Nebula. This image is 2,500 light years away. And if anybody knows how far that is, it's over six trillion miles, very far from where we are. Um, this image has been dubbed the Eye of God, which I love that because I love the verse where it says that he guides us with his eye. So God is not only watching from a spiritual vantage point, he's watching from a natural vantage point, which is awesome. Um, so very, very far from us. Sometimes we feel like God is far from us, though that's not the case. Okay, so next one, guys. Okay, now we're going to go up real close. We're going to go from telescope, um, and the last image was the James Webb telescope, so our new telescope that's out there. This is a regular microscope. These are cells in your body. These are skin cells. And if you look close, you see those dark pink spot, spots in the center. Those are, that's the nucleus of each cell. The nucleus of your cells holds all of your DNA, all of your genetic material, everything that makes you who you are, your hair color, your eye color, your height, your weight, whatever. It's all in that nucleus. So let's look at the, the next one. This is your DNA close up. This is um, 10 nanometers. And a nanometer, if anybody's familiar with a meter stick, there's about a billion nanometers on a meter stick. So a little bit bigger than a yardstick, a billion nanometers for your DNA. So this is really, really, really small. You have anywhere between 28 trillion and 36 trillion cells in your body. Each one of those cells has a nucleus. And in each one of those nuclei are DNA. Biologists see that that DNA, if stretched out end to end, would equal six feet. So in every single cell that you have, you have six feet of DNA. Next one, and this should be our last, yeah. So this is what we're used to seeing when we see DNA, that double helix. So that double helix, if we were to take all the DNA in every single cell of your body, stretch it out, it would reach from the sun to Pluto seven time, 17 times, 
sun to Pluto. This is enormous amounts of, of miles. But it's the code that God puts in our cells to make us who we are. And it can reach out to some of the farthest places in space. So with that, I want to talk to you about um, so big our God is, so detailed in what he thinks and all the thoughts that he has towards us. Pastor Jim asked me to share on the unity in the spirit. And for me, anytime I think of unity in the spirit, which would be all of us, I think of the intimacy that we have to have with the Father first that transfers to all of those in the body of Christ, that unity in the spirit. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to focus a little bit on intimacy first, and then we'll move into uh, unity. So we're going to start with Psalm 133. And it says, behold, everybody's familiar with this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. That's unity. And it's good. Your first fill-in is it's objectively good. When there's unity between the brothers, between those who are children of a common father, it's very good. And it's even more than that. Number two, fill in number two, is it's experientially pleasant. It's pleasing to the hearts of God and to man. And it's good in every way when God's people experience unity. That oil that was poured on Aaron's head is poured from above. So it's poured on the head, it runs over his head, down his beard, onto his collar and robes. Oil in the Bible is typically seen or um, used as a, a picture of Holy Spirit. So when we think about Holy Spirit being poured out, he's poured out from above us onto our head, which is our senior leadership, and down over his body, which is us. So the oil of the Spirit is poured down in unity over the head and onto the body and it's poured out as Holy Spirit. Another place, oh, I'm sorry, number three. Um, this verse shows us that unity comes from above. It's poured out from above, straight from heaven through Holy Spirit to us, to others. The next place that we see unity is in Acts chapter two, verse one, where they were all in one accord on the day of Pentecost. That word accord is a formal agreement or a compact, a treaty, but it's also considered a voluntary or spontaneous impulse to act. That's the part I like. It's a voluntary, spontaneous impulse to act in unison so that we move together. Don't know how we're going to move, kind of like Holy Spirit. We're moving as the Spirit leads us and the Spirit comes like a wind. We don't know where it comes from, we don't know where it goes, but we know it's leading us. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. And I want to emphasize that oneness, that word one. To the Jewish people, one meant more than just singular. One was a word that they had for God the Father. They had a prayer that's written in Deuteronomy 6 that says, Hear, O Israel, this is fill in number four, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a prayer that they would pray every morning and every evening. It's called the Shema. It started their day and ended their day. It was a declaration of who God was, not just in his oneness, but in his power and who he actually was. They, the Jewish people, knew who God was, some of them experientially, some of them not so much. Some of them experientially knew him in intimacy. In number five, the word intimacy is defined as a state of having a close personal relationship. It can also be a romantic relationship with someone, and it's defined by the Cambridge Dictionary. It only takes one encounter with the face of God and Holy Spirit to change us that intimate encounter with God the Father. God uses the word to know in the Bible as an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. In Genesis 4.1, it says Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. In the Hebrew, I'm sorry, in the Greek, there's a word genosko. And that word indicates a combination of close, warm, and even passionate intimacy. As human beings, we all desire that intimacy with, with one another. We desire that fellowship for people to know us and for us to know others. And that is because it's in our DNA. That's fill in number six. It's part of our DNA, the desire for intimacy. It's how God created us because we're made in his image. In Genesis 1, it says, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. He was talking to other people. He was talking to Jesus and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. So if we were created in his image, then we can assume that God himself desires intimacy and fellowship. He desires that from the Son and from the Spirit. So the three have an intimate relationship. Jesus spoke of this when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, and that's us, those that came after, through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He also, Jesus alludes to this oneness when he, uh, uh, he says in John 15, and this is, Pastor Ralph talked about this last week, abide in me as I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit all by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. 
So we're to abide in the vine as branches. The word abide is a verb. It's an active word. It means to stay or to remain. And it means far more than the idea of just believing in Jesus. It's this abiding, this intimacy that we have that creates in us that witness, that testimony, that, um, that persona that we bring out to the community of who Jesus is. For some of us, some of the people that we run into, we, were, we will be the only Jesus that they see. So we need to be aware of that. We need to abide in order to pursue God in the way that he, he wants us to. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul said, God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord is faithful. That word fellowship is the word in Greek koinonia. And koinonia is the closest possible fellowship and intimacy, complete oneness and unity with God. It's an intense unity and intimacy with God the Father. Our life is never the same after we encounter God. During that intimate moment where we're saved, where we actually feel the, the love and the joy of, of the Spirit pouring out over us, we are face to face with God the Father through Holy Spirit. The face of God is seen in every outpouring of Holy Spirit. Moses knew this because he was a friend of God, and David knew this as well because he was a man after God's own heart. David wrote in Psalm 63, verse 1, and I have a different translation that I found. It's called the voice translation. Like I said this morning, no parallel to the voice on TV. Um, David wrote, O true God, you are my God, the one whom I trust. I seek you with every fiber of my being. In this dry and weary land with no water in sight, my soul is dry and longs for you. My body aches for you, for your presence. I mean, think about that. Desiring someone with every fiber of your being, allowing your body to ache for the presence. That's not an occasional afterthought. That's not something that we do here and there. And you know, church, church family, know my heart. It's not about going to church on Sunday. And then you leave and you don't think about God the rest of the week. Or you don't commune with him. You don't talk to him. It's not even about going to church if we went once every day. That's not it. This aching, this aching with every fiber of your being is a 24-7, moment-by-moment walk with God being led by the Spirit. It's the intimacy that God desires of us, and it's what we should desire of ourselves with Him as well. Amen. Jesus wants us to be connected to Him like a branch in a vine, grafted in so that the roots of that vine bring up all the nutrients, that living water that we need from wherever the soil, and it goes not only to the original stem and trunk of the plant, but it goes out to every branch. So let me tell you a little story. I like to garden. I'm not great at house plants, but you get me outside, I like to dig in the dirt, I like to transplant things, I like to move bushes around, Don will tell you. <laughs> um, but 
there's a way that arborists, people who take care of trees, I was told between the other services, um, they're arborists, um, they take care of trees, and they can actually take trees that are disease resistant and graft them in to a tree trunk that can keep away any of the bugs or anything from the soil or anything like that. So we can take a branch, we have on our property a cherry tree that is grafted. We can take the branch or top part of one tree and put it into the trunk of another tree. And they do this when the, the tree is young, they slice the trunk and then they cut off a branch from a tree and they put that branch right in the trunk and then they wrap it with this special tape and leave it. And then they fertilize it, they water it, and they pray, I'm sure, that that branch will remain alive. It has to fuse to the trunk. So let me, let me get all scientific teacher thing on you. So inside every branch and every tree trunk, there are tubes, similar to your veins and arteries that carry blood back and forth to every cell in your body. Those tubes bring water and they bring nutrients from the, the soil to the rest of the plant so that the plant can photosynthesize and grow and produce fruit. That's what they want to happen in these grafted trees. If that doesn't happen at all, the branch that they tried to graft will wither and die. And like any good gardener, we just read, that branch will be cut off and thrown into the fire. It'll be thrown away. There's a time where part of that grafting can actually work. And some of those tubes connect and fuse together. And then this, the water and the nutrients are brought up. But if it's not a full fusing or grafting, only part of the tree will flower or fruit, the part that, where it's connected, where it's working. If it's a successful graft, the entire tree will flower and fruit. And that's where Jesus is telling us to be. So that that rootstock, that's him, the vine, pulls up all of the nutrients that we need, gives us that living water, and sends it out to the branches so that we can be those who flower and fruit in the kingdom of God. So what's the point, right? Unless a branch abides in the vine and stays in him, we can't do anything worth anything in the kingdom. The Bible tells us that some of those things will burn away, that we wood, hay, and stubble, the things that we think we're doing for God. And then there's gonna be other things that we do that are precious stones that will stay and remain. We've gotta be mindful. Are we connected? Do we have that intimate, living, vital relationship with God the Father, with Holy Spirit, and with Jesus? We need to be so intimate that it produces the edge in our lives, that an, an edge, an edge, like a sharp edge in our life that enables us to trust God, but at the same time perceive what he's doing and obey everything he gives us to do. That's how the kingdom goes forth. It'll be a place where others can't tell where he ends and we begin. On a tree that's grafted, sometimes there's a scar or a bump. You might see that. Jesus bore those scars for us. We don't need to worry about them. And it was the intimacy that Jesus had with the Father and Holy Spirit that was his foundation 
on earth. He did more in three years of ministry than some of us do in our entire lives for the kingdom to push it forth. Every miracle, every message was his priority in a face-to-face -face relationship with Father God through the empowerment of Holy Spirit to bring forth what God wanted to do in the earth. So we need to be in that place where we don't just know about Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father. We need to know the Spirit. We don't want to just know facts about Him. We don't want to be able to just quote Bible verses, although that's awesome, because we need that. Our spirit man needs that. But we don't want to just know, we just don't want to know about the Spirit and the Father and the Son. We want to know them intimately in that close relationship, that koinonia, that intimate relationship. Because that intimacy with the Godhead, and this is number seven, that intimacy leads to unity in the spirit. How does that happen? I'm glad you asked. Because that unity is not a spirit of friendliness. It's not camaraderie. It's not even meeting together on a Sunday morning like this. It's not an aim or goal that we can drum up intentionally, and it's not mechanical. The definition of unity is a state of being. It is oneness. Go figure, right? It's the same definition as intimacy or part of it. So number eight, unity is oneness. Just like intimacy, it's that closest fellowship, that koinonia, that oneness. But the unity of the spirit refers to unity, number nine, that is given or it is provided by Holy Spirit. We can't make it happen. It's supernatural unity. Unity in the spirit is living and it's vital. And it starts within us when we are born again and filled with the spirit. It's part of who Holy Spirit is as part of the Father and the Son because they dwell in perfect unity. Unity is something that Holy Spirit works in us so that we can work it out of us. It works out of us in the church body as we're living and growing together. It's life-giving, it's organic, and it's diverse. Just like we are all diverse, we are all different. We can't have one person be a hand and the other person be a foot and one person be an eyeball. No, we need all of the parts to work together. Let's think about that image of the skin cells and the DNA. So I want you to think with me for just a second. We're going to, going to go science nerd again. Um, Every single one of us begins as two cells, one from mom, one from dad. Those cells come together and they create one organism. Then they, biologists will say that they divide, but they actually multiply. So every time there's a division of the cell, it's exponential, meaning it doesn't just add two more cells, it multiplies the number. So two becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, becomes 32, 64, 128, 356, and on and on and on. Biologists believe that there's 41 
divisions or multiplications of the cells from those two cells to make an infant, to make a baby. When we think about all the cells in our body, we've got anywhere from 28 to 36 trillion cells. That's a lot of multiplication. But all of the parts of, those, of that baby come from the two cells and the genetic material that's in those two cells. That material multiplies as well, it divides as well, and it's in every single cell that is created through that division. And all of those cells know what to do because of the genetic material that's in those cells. Your DNA tells the cells, this, this cell's gonna be a hand, this cell's gonna be an eyeball, this cell's gonna be a mouth, this is gonna be your hair. And as they're dividing, which happens rather quickly, all of the cells know where they're going, know what to do. They take what they were made for, their diversity, their function, which is totally different than other cells, to make a human being, to make us what we are. So let's look at that in comparison to the body of Christ. Number 10 says we are joined to each other and to Christ by Holy Spirit. And we have to get this because God is doing something new and we want to go together. We want to go in unison, okay? Somebody sent something, Dave sent me something this week that's uh, from Isaiah 43. And it says, we need to forget all that we know about church and how God does things or did things. Because God said, forget all that is behind. It's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. It's all going to be new. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 says, anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone and the new has come. The Amplified says it a little different because the Amplified's a little bit wordy. And it says in verse 17, therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creation altogether. The old or previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. So one, we're joined in. Two, we're in Christ. Three, we are brand new creations. I've read somewhere somebody said we are brand new prototypes, never before created, never before on earth. We are new creations in Christ. But altogether, we're a, we're a family. We have diversity. We have distinctions and uniqueness. Without those, that diversity and that distinction and those unique traits and gifts, we can't be unified in the Spirit because that means that everything's the same. Are we okay? Okay. If each part is different, it will function differently, it will look differently, but they all work together. Every cell in your body from every system or organ is different from the other. My digestive system cells are different than my skin cells, that are different than my lung cells, that are different from my heart cells, but they all work together in unity as one human being. That's us, church. That's who we are as the body of Christ. We all work together for the purpose that God has set up for us, that the Son died for, and that the Spirit leads us in. Because the parts of the bo human body work in unison just like we do. It's a great analogy. But that unison must come through Holy Spirit. And it comes as we grow and mature. 
Even in the natural, as an infant grows to maturity, we, as born-again believers, need to grow from baby Christians to mature Christians. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves, by every doctrine, by, every, uh, by human cunning and craftiness. It's God desi God's desire that we become like him. Holy Spirit is here. He's our teacher. He leads us and he guides us. The more we have the character and the mind of Christ in us, the more we know intimately the Spirit of God, the more that Holy Spirit can move in us, and the more we will experience as a body the unity of the Spirit. So how do we do that? Another good question. We attain intimacy with the Spirit of God and unity in the Spirit through Holy Spirit. Luke 6.40 says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's our comforter, our parakletos, the one who walks with us. He counsels us, he guides us. As our teacher, we want to be like him. So that's our first thing we need to do. Fill in number 11 is we need to be fully trained. We need to be an example or a witness of Christ here on earth and model ourselves after what the word says because Holy Spirit is our teacher and we go through the school of the spirit. We need to be just like Jesus was, the exact likeness or visible representation of Christ here on the earth. Jesus was that of the Father when he was here. The second thing we need is to walk by faith. This is fill in number 12. We need to walk by faith and be led by the Spirit. We are led by Holy Spirit in that we're ever listening to his voice and his promptings. And we have that ever listening ear when we have the intimacy and we practice the presence all the time. We listen to his voice that he, when he prompts us to do something or to speak to somebody, even when we don't understand, even when we're hesitant or afraid. The next way we attain the unity of the Spirit is number 13. We need to be intentional to take on the yoke of Jesus. Mark 11 says, uh, Jesus told his disciples, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is wholesome, useful and good. It's not harsh, hard, sharp, or pressing, but comfortable, gracious, and pleasant. My burden is light and easy to be borne. So think about that. A yoke is that um, the wooden or metal uh, piece that go, would go on the oxen to help them plow the fields. So there would be two oxen, two oxen. One would be an older one, and one would be a younger one. The older one would know exactly what to do. And because they were yoked together, there was that gentle pulling of the younger one to stay on the path that he had to stay on and to do what he needed to do. Otherwise, he's going to go run off and go find some great clover to eat. So think about Holy Spirit or Jesus 
in that yoke with us. He's leading ever so gently, keeping us on the path that we need to be on. But we have to be listening and we have to obey those promptings when we get them. So our takeaways today, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, but number the first takeaway we have is that we need to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We've all been called if we're born again believers. Not because we're worthy do we walk worthy, but because he's worthy and the calling itself is worthy. The second way we do this is number two, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, as Paul told us. Some translations say preserve the unity of the spirit. And it's, it's, it, it means just that, to preserve, just like salt preserves meat. I also heard somebody say, salt isn't just a preservative, it's an enhancer. It makes things taste better. It doesn't just help us store them over the long term. So think about that. We are salt and light. Jesus called us salt and light. So if we are salt and we are enhancers, wherever we are in our community, in our jobs, in our homes, we are enhancers, things that bring more to or better than the circumstances that are around us. We are those people that bring Holy Spirit into a situation when people around us don't even know what we're doing. And it enhances where we are. And we do this through the Holy Spirit, that intimate relationship with Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Father. Remember what David said in Psalm 63, O true God, I seek you with every fiber of my being. My body aches for your presence. So we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to use that prayer language, pray in the Spirit so that we are built up in our most holy faith, so that we can be those that seek God with every fiber of our being. One of the most direct ways to find more intimacy and unity in the spirit is, is my favorite. It's the most direct. Just ask. Jesus said we have not because we ask not. All we need to do is ask. We can ask Holy Spirit, help us hear you, Help us abide, help us have that intimate relationship in that ingrafting. All we need to do is ask. Jesus said he would do all things for us. The Father in heaven would grant us those things that we ask. As long as it's in line with what he's telling us to do, by all means, we can have that. So our goal is to strive for unity in the spirit, not something we conjure up, but through the intimacy with the Spirit as we're grafted in and through that intimacy with each other as the body of Christ. Everybody good? Amen. Amen. So let me pray for you this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father, I just thank you. For this church body, I thank you for uh, the foundation that was built at Grace and Peace. I thank you for our founders, Pastor Maureen and Walt, and I thank you, Lord God, that you have a calling on this place, that it has not subsided, it has not gone away. Everything that you call, Father, and that you ordain, you bring to fruition. And Father, as we 
abide in you as a church body, as we um, cultivate that intimacy in the spirit, Father, and remain grafted into the vine. I pray that Holy Spirit would move on us in a way like we've never seen before, Lord. I pray that we would move as a church body in unison in the diversity of gifts with all the callings that we have, Father, to move and, and push forward your kingdom here on earth, that we might be those who are ready for that great outpouring of Holy Spirit. Father, do not pass us by, Lord. We reach out to you and we say that we want intimacy with you, Father God, and Holy Spirit, that we might do all that you give us to do in this day and in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.